Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. Hello, welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Chris Demuth, a PM at Rangeley. With me as always is my co-host and fellow Rangeley PM, Andrew Walker. Today we're looking at Verizon's M&A opportunities, uh, the feeding frenzy that could uh, happen in uh, in uh, the telecom space in the weeks ahead, before catching up with Steve Ballmer, uh, formerly of Microsoft, and now trying to uh, build a business-like 10K and report for the United States of America, uh, largely the government, but also with other uh, public policy uh, sensitive uh, statistics about the economy uh, and the market. Uh, to start off with, Verizon didn't buy anything in the just-completed FCC Spectrum auction, but it appears as if that Spectrum is about the only thing that Verizon doesn't want to own. Uh, they're considering besting AT&T's uh, deal with StraightPath, $1.25 billion now, and possibly $1.5 billion when they're done. He's also looking at Comcast, $181 billion, Disney, $179, and CBS at $31. Presumably, he won't buy all of them, but that's over $390 billion of market cap that he is looking at, big even for a $200 billion company. Uh, he just uh, this week bought a billion dollars of cable. That's a lot of cable and related equipment from Corning. Uh, looking forward to Verizon's 5G rollout. So that's clearly on his mind. And I think a big topic is what he needs for that. So, uh, Andrew, I will start with that. What do you think about Verizon's next steps? Yeah, so I thought there were a lot interesting. So, you know, he gave this wide-ranging Bloomberg interview that you're quoting where he said, yeah, we, we might buy, we're open, like our phone book's open. We might buy Comcast. We might buy Disney. We might, might buy CBS. And it was just strange. Like, I, I don't think I've ever seen someone come out and just almost like, word vomit this list of huge companies that they might look to that they might go look to buy uh i also think it's interesting like there's two very divergent strategies you're talking about mm -hmm. there you know if you go by well comcast does comcast fits them pretty well because with comcast you get nbc right comcast owns nbc and dreamworks so you get a bunch of content that kind of rivals it lets you keep up with uh at&t buying time warner but you also get all of the the comcast uh cable assets as well so you can kind of build that nationwide quad play with cable phone tv and wireless and use all of comcast cable backbone to support your build out of 5g so that's interesting but it it's massive 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 and you're really buying comcast thinking about the cable assets, not the NBC assets, because the cable assets just dwarf the NBC assets. Whereas if you go look at Disney, I mean, it would be the largest media acquisition of all time. After debt, it's over $200 billion. That's taking the Time Warner acquisition that AT&T is doing and just taking it to the absolute extreme because you're going and going after all this different set of content. And in many ways, it's a little bit different than the Time Warner acquisition because the Time Warner acquisition is a lot about HBO, which is that subscription premium service, whereas, or whereas uh, Disney doesn't really have that subscription premium service figured out. They've got fantastic content assets, but they don't have a subscription play. So if they're going after them, Verizon's kind of saying, hey, between Yahoo and AOL we and our Go90 division, We'll figure out distribution. We've we just need to get uh, more content to pair with all these things. So it, tremendously interesting, tremendously interesting. He seems like he's going to do something. I mean, nothing seems like one of the least likely uh, conclusions. He seems like the two concerns are uh, not dense enough uh, on the uh, assets that he needs for five G and not 
uh, content rich enough for the you know probably if he does an OTT if he does other uh, delivery especially video over phone they want something to show on it and and he seems like both of those is kind of gnawing at him right now yeah and it was interesting because back in December he did this big analyst interview where he said listen we're not interested in a mega transformative deal and he specifically said we're not interested in Dish or CBS and said we don't want to manage talent we don't want to be in the contest business in January he kind of hinted hey maybe we're going after Charter or Comcast uh, to get the backbone but this is a big difference and uh to throw in cbs after he had said he wasn't there and then it was interesting to me as well that dish which is a very good fit for them i think was not on there dish Mm -hmm. has a lot of spectrum and verizon needs spectrum I, i saw some stats today that said verizon has the lowest ratio of spectrum to subscribers by far of any of the four wireless companies and dish also has you know the dish tv and the ott app which helps them kind of counteract AT&T's uh, DirecTV play. So I thought it was very interesting Dish was not on there. I think the kind of Sun Tzu, Art of War, Spidey sense would say that the thing that he didn't mention is what he's actually going to do would be Dish. I mean, that uh, uh, would really fit as opposed to the, the just... I mean, the, when he was kind of jawboning about M&A, it's like if we were chatting about what they might do in theory, you know, just an analyst kind of pouring through options, but he's the CEO of the company. Uh, very yeah, unusual. One thing we we talk about a lot is when there are these news reports that get leaked and somebody says, oh, Amazon might buy Whole Foods. And we're like, okay, it, we don't think it's there. But just because one person at the company looked at it, like mm-hmm. a CEO should always be a, assessing his options. But this is almost like the CEO is assessing his options in public. Just super strange to just go mm-hmm. throw all of those out there. Um, my guess is that Comcast, which would make a lot of sense, is not necessarily looking to sell. Their management team probably is more obstinate. Charter is the one that I always think is just price sensitive. They would sell today. They would not mm-hmm. sell today based on price. So if somebody wants to overpay for them, I think they are probably... Uh, quite available, have the best management team if anybody needs to hire. Uh, Disney's interesting on the management side in that they don't have a long-term CEO. Bob Iger wants to leave. He has nobody teed up to replace him. So M&A from that perspective. And, and just just perfect content that you can crank through any pipe forever. I mean, they're old content. Just, you know, uh, you know, perfect. On the Disney front, I think two things are interesting. Uh, I, I saw some quotes earlier this week. They're a little bit stale, but John Malone was talking about, hey, if you were Disney, you probably need to jettison ESPN at some point, yep. sell it to some private investors. And one of the things Verizon was saying was, oh, Disney would be so perfect for us if they didn't have ESPN. So it really seems like ESPN might be on the chopping block mm-hmm. from, from a lot of different angles for people who are kind of strategically interested in Disney. But if you're going to go for Disney and you're Verizon, don't you kind of wait to see the resolution of the AT&T Time Warner deal right now? You know, I think both of us think that will get approved, but wait, make sure that it can get approved before you kind of sign on the dotted line and commit to the complexity of this 200 billion plus possible purchase. That's that's a very good point. I believe that ESPN, ticker ESPN is available and would make sense that a a spun-off company would make it much more bite-sized and really signal if Disney wanted to be bite-sized for a deal. 
Uh, CBS, one of the other potential targets, has news uh, as recently uh, or as, as soon as over the next 24 hours in terms of uh, some deregulation and uh, changes uh, to UHF that could really impact its value. Uh, not long to wait, but that's going to be something that people are going to be looking at thinking about uh, CBS. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, the only nice thing with... Um CBS and Dish, they both have kind of controlled majority owners, so the mm-hmm. negotiations there might be a little bit simpler than if you're going at Disney, where you're you're gonna, you know, Disney has huge, massive shareholders. It's a lot more diverse. You might have a lot of different interests there, but uh, that's the only thing I can think of that might favor one of those two. Of course, they're also much more bite sized I mean, a two hundred billion dollar plus acquisition is just really crazy to think about. But hey, I, I guess anything can happen. It, it helps the talks to keep it confidential. And it even just helps, you know, looking at the stocks, it's, it's reasonably likely that you could just see an announcement one day without the kind of normal kind of leaky process, mm-hmm. leading to it, which can be uh, can be counterproductive. Um, that's what I wanted to discuss on that. Are you ready to move on to uh, mm-hmm. other other things? Uh, Steve Ballmer, we haven't uh, heard from uh, much recently. Uh, I don't know if he was the number one, or he's probably close to the top in terms of people who were enriched by their leaving the company. Yeah. Uh, that uh, uh, he, his wealth went up by billions by the, uh, by the fact that he left uh, Microsoft. Um, I think I would feel good about that. I'd have mixed feelings. Uh, I don't know. You I know mean, it would hurt. You know, so, I mean, Steve Ballmer, I think he's worth like $20 billion. Yeah. So the day he left Microsoft, I think the stock went up by 10%. Uh-huh. So he went from 20 to 22 yeah. But you know, at that point, you're worth so much money. Like, I think my ego would be more hurt more that sensitive. investors were so negative on me that me leaving a company could single-handedly increase its increase its value by 25 to 30 billion dollars uh, you know on the other hand he is somebody even though he's extremely wealthy he does seem to have fun with it you know i always think that uh the kind of extreme misers and kind of hand ringers amongst the extreme wealthy kind of uh take away so much of the fun that when you have the steve balmers uh, larry ellison probably very much as well who actually have something to do with billions of dollars it's kind of fun uh you know he has a, a boat with a submarine and so forth and so he probably was thinking of some cool stuff you could spend the marginal billion on yeah look he bought the clippers for two billion dollars i think uh people at the time it was so funny because uh the the sales book for the clippers got leaked Mm -hmm. and the high end of the bids that bankers were kind of projecting to were about one and a half billion and he just blew everyone away with a two billion dollar bid but uh, I, I've seen a lot of quotes with him about his time with the Clippers, and he seems to be having a fantastic time. Yeah. And uh, I also think he's thinking about a lot of really interesting ways to kind of revolutionize the business side of owning a team. And come to think of it, the Clippers was that purchase that was about the marginal amount in yeah. terms of the wealth change on him leaving Microsoft. Well, while we're thinking about Steve Ballmer right now, is just this week he had a conversation. Uh, the background is he had a conversation with his wife that was probably looking at. Uh, uh, you know, Melinda Gates about to get kind of sainted and beatified and all of this great press on her uh, generosity. And meanwhile, the bombers are uh, kind of kicking back, having fun on their big boat. But she probably was looking at this and saying, hey, we need to get out there on some more philanthropy. And his first reaction to that is, well, we are we pay huge tax bills every year. Isn't that the world's biggest philanthropy? And then turning back and saying, hey, is, is that really right? What, where is this money going? Where yeah. is it? And uh, spent, I think it was $10 million so far to put together a very kind of West Coast IT, nicely uh, kind of formatted and framed uh, 
uh, a budget and uh, kind of assessment of the United States, especially the U.S. government. Um, so, Andrew, I don't know if, uh, how much of this uh, you looked at in detail. I've been kind of pouring through it, found it very interesting, but wanted to uh, get your sense of what do you think about all this? Yeah, so I, I've looked through the website a little bit. You know, I think the most interesting thing was I, reading the article and his thought press behind it, like, I didn't realize that none of this information existed. Like, it was just a little bit crazy to me that the government takes so much money in and anybody who wanted to kind of be an accountability person had to go to all these various different databases and kind of put it all together themselves. I was I was just surprised in general that the accountability metrics didn't exist. So I, I thought it was a fantastically cool project. Uh, there, there was just... Uh, there's just so much data in there. It's it's tough to kind of really dive into unless you're going to make it a full-time job almost. Yeah, you know, when you look at uh, this past century, we really went full uh, circle from companies, company data with the government being completely opaque and uh, people like Ben Graham, you know, going to D.C. to find the utility data that now we can find online uh, in seconds. So the government standards went from very low to very high in terms of transparency data and just having consistent formatting for companies. So now I would actually say it's pretty good. You can yeah. kind of uh, you can collect it pretty easily. It is uh, broadly available and analyzed. But they don't do it to themselves. So I think the fact that he got out out there was uh, healthy and good. Uh, I had a few uh, specific reactions on the substance. You know, um, if you look at it and you compare it to the kind of the data, and I think data is so important. I think that you're. BS if you say you care about something but don't measure it, that measuring is the activity of uh, people who are serious about a topic, um, that if you compare it to kind of uh, a frivolous banter about it, uh, boy, number one, entitlements, such a huge thing. The budget has lots of topics like uh, uh, foreign aid comes up constantly. It's huge amounts of ink spilled. It's tiny. It's almost not worth mentioning. I, I, had, the same, I had the same thoughts. You know, like... It, you see these things and uh, I'll, I'll make a number up, you know, $2 billion spent on welfare every year. And then you, you go look at the actual budget and the percentage and it's the, the tiniest little sliver of thing. And you're you're kind of like, why the heck are we even thinking about this? Uh, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, the Trump administration said they were going to stop releasing their visitor logs. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons they gave for that was they were going to spend they were going to save $70,000 a year on uh, the release and tracking of the visitor logs. And they spent more than that in the PR move trying to defend the decision not to release the visitor logs. It's like sometimes these little tiny things, they just don't matter in the grand scheme of things in the giant, in the vast swarm that is the U.S. government. I think that um, one of the things that if you focus on the big, big uh, programs, it's scarier than if you were well beneath the efficiency curve, but there were things that were unpopular or stupid, just waste, fraud, and abuse that you could easily kind of tweak. A, a big concern I have looking at this is that the vast parts of the budget where things are really out of control are big, popular, entrenched programs that have no history of getting cut back or eliminated mm -hmm. uh, and that there's not any kind of consensus for either raising taxes to pay for them or having taxes raised to fit the debt or having spending cut to fit the taxes. Yeah. And so there's not a demo 
the democracy plus the demography is on one side, the budget is on the other, and there's not some kind of trite rhetoric that you could use to fit the two together. Um, I, I tried, though, uh, to come up with a couple little thoughts uh, in terms of areas that they're not clearly Republican, Democrat, conservative, a liberal that I was just going to tick off. Uh, one was when you look at the taxes right now, I, I would say that um, people could describe them in different ways, but they look pretty high, progressive, and uneven. And while the first two attributes could be controversial, the third should be something where there should be tons of consensus between liberals and conservatives. And when I say uneven, I mean it's not a smooth progression. Mm -hmm. Whatever the level of progressivity is, whatever the uh, that philosophical view, which I would kick to somebody else, it shouldn't be so spotty that you can have over 100% marginal tax rates along the way. Mm -hmm. Many, many people do. Uh, if you look at net transfers in addition to the taxes, I think that's something that if people were more aware of could be uh, confronted. And then the uh, other thing, the uh, second point I'd mention in a little conclusion is uh, that virtue signaling is clearly such a big part of government. On the right, I would say, if you look at the war on drugs or illegal immigration, on the left, the war on poverty, Head Start, and federalizing education generally, there's so many things where there's just no data that they work, mm -hmm. um, but that uh, that people still talk about. I mean, illegal immigration is a constant uh, right now in political discourse. Not just immigration, but illegal immigration is almost the perfect partial solution to our entitlement problem. People who come in at work age put tons of money into the yeah. economy, paying payroll taxes, and then disappear by the time they'd be beneficiaries. Um, and I think the real contribution Balmer can make is towards an approach where priorities are weighed against each other, against their costs, and where policies are responsible for consequences intended and not, and not just their intent, not just at the superficial level of rhetoric. So anyways, that was my, that perfect. Was my thought on that. Perfect, perfect. Anything? Do you want the last word? No, no, no. You took it. I think we're way over time. Why oh, don't we sorry. wrap up there? Uh, all the time we have for today and more. Uh, before we hit our disclosures, a reminder, if you like the podcast, please follow us, rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audio Boom. And disclosure, we are long time Warner. Yep. That's it. Thank you. Bye. Bye.